The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. He was used of God to give us a remarkable, intimate, powerful account of the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. John composed his Gospel to provide reasons of saving faith proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written so that you may believe. Let's turn together in our Bibles to John chapter 4, and we'll be looking today at the last passage in that chapter this morning as we uh, continue in our series on the book of John. I want to take a moment as you're turning to John chapter 4 to remind everybody that each Sunday the sermon outline is available on mcgregor.net. All you have to do is click the watch button, and on that next page you'll see a PDF option and an editable uh, Word option uh, for you to download either one of those. Uh, Pretty simple to do if you want an outline each week. So let's rewind back now to two Sundays ago. Uh, We saw in the first few verses of John chapter 4 that Jesus was leaving the area around Jerusalem to head north to the region of Galilee. But before he got there, the scripture states that in John 4, 4, he had to pass through Samaria because he had a divine appointment. And for the past two Sundays, we've been looking at the content of that divine appointment that Jesus had the conversation with the woman at the well, as well as the results of the change that took place in her life after that conversation. So today, we pick up in verse 43 of John chapter 4, where Jesus resumes his trip that was his original destination of Galilee, and he'll spend a couple of years there, much of the time teaching the folks in that particular area and ministering to them. So if we want to find out what happens next, let's stand together. And in honor of the reading of God's word, let's take a look at what the scripture says. Again, we're going to be in John 4, beginning in verse 43. Word of God says this, after the two days he departed for Galilee, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea 
to Galilee. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now the last verse we just read tells us that this moment is the second instance of what is commonly called the seven signpost miracles. And the apostle John catalogs them in his gospel account. And so as I worked through the passage this past week, I landed on three main points of progression, if you will, three moments of progression that I believe this passage moves through, and you'll see those represented in the outline uh, today. But let me make a disclaimer before we jump into the text. If uh, you have a MacArthur Study Bible, you may notice a similar structure mentioned in MacArthur's notes. But for the record, I did not copy John MacArthur's outline. I'm just honored that the Lord led me to the same conclusions that Pastor John has about this passage. So the first thing that we see here, number one on your outline, is how Jesus contemplates unbelief. Jesus contemplates unbelief. Now, since April, we have seen several passages in John that deal with the difference between unbelief and genuine faith. Back in John chapter two, we saw a very clear statement in verse 11 after Jesus turned the water into wine that his disciples believed in him and their belief was genuine because we know that because they followed Jesus after that. But then later in John chapter two, it says that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not believe in them. So why were there those who believed in Jesus like the disciples who had a genuine faith, yet there were others who believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them? We don't have to guess. We saw it when we studied John chapter two. It was because Jesus knew their hearts and their faith wasn't genuine. They didn't believe the same way the disciples did. Their believing in Jesus was actually unbelief. It was false belief because they didn't end up following Jesus. And that really is the proof of genuine faith. See, there were those in that day who were only interested in Jesus because he seemed to put on a good show. He was interesting to them, but only for their own purposes. And that's not genuine faith. So the contrast between unbelief and belief, between unbelief and genuine faith, is something we've already seen a lot in the book of John so far. Oh, and don't forget, in John chapter 3, there was that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus where apparently Nicodemus went from unbelief to faith. And then again, for the past two Sundays, we've looked at this conversation with a woman at the well where she goes from unbelief to genuine faith. We'll see that same contrast in our passage today as Jesus now faces unbelief in two places. Two places. The first one of those is in the resistant crowds. That'd be letter A on your outline. In the resistant crowds. We find in verse 43 that after two days in Samaria, Jesus resumes the trip to Galilee. And as a side note, the apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, <laughs> mentions that Jesus has already had an experience prior to this moment that did not go well. Look at verse 44 with me. It says in verse 44, it states, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. When, when John mentions that, he's mentioning a statement that Jesus has already made in a particular moment, but that moment is not recorded in John's gospel. 
except right here in this, oh, by the way, sentence in verse 44. But that particular moment is actually detailed in the other three gospel accounts because it's when Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth. It's found in Matthew 13 and in Mark 6 and in Luke chapter 4. And I'll talk more about that particular moment later this week in our Beyond the Notes podcast. But let me just say right now that things didn't go well for Jesus when he returned to his hometown. I don't know if you've ever been back to your hometown since you grew up, but it was not a pleasant experience for Jesus. Because what he did was he read from the Old Testament scroll of Isaiah in the local synagogue in Nazareth. And then he's explained to the people there in that synagogue that the Messiah that Isaiah was talking about was him. And they didn't like that. They tried to kill him. See, Jesus was not the author of how to win friends and influence people, but he was the author and is the author of Isaiah. And the prophecy of Isaiah is about Jesus. And when he said that, people didn't like it because of their unbelief. So from the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus faced resistant crowds. And John is giving us this contrast between unbelief and genuine faith. And it's a contrast because when Jesus gets to Galilee here, he also found unbelief in the welcoming crowds. Be letter B on your outline, in the welcoming crowds. Unbelief was not just present in the resistant crowds, but in verse 45, In contrast to his visit to Nazareth, when he was almost killed, Jesus came to Cana and they what? Look at it, verse 45, they welcomed him. It it tells us why they welcomed him too. See, most Jews, regardless of where they lived, would have come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So the, the Jews in Galilee saw what Jesus had done because they were there when he cleaned out the temple at Passover So here they give him a positive reception. But even so, it's still unbelief. They were interested in Jesus because he put on a good show, but they did not believe Jesus is who he says he is. And that's still true today. There are people that you probably know that are openly resistant to the gospel and their unbelief is evident to you, either at the office or in your neighborhood or at school, maybe even in your family. But there's also people whose unbelief may be harder to detect because they seem more open and they're even interested in Jesus, but their interest in him is for what they can get from him. One of the reasons I believe the Apostle John includes this story about this dad is to remind us that unbelief is found in both crowds. And regardless of which crowd a person is in, what Jesus does is he confronts unbelief. That's number two on your outline. Jesus confronts unbelief. We see here in the text that this dad has come from Cana, from, came to Cana from Capernaum, and Capernaum is all the way on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's just under 20 miles northeast of Cana. So think about it. If you had to walk to church this morning from Alva, and you, you throw in mountains and rocky terrain and a 1,600-foot elevation gain. That's what it would be like. It's an eight-hour walk that this man undertook. And in verse 46, the scripture says, this dad is an, an official. We don't know what kind of official he was. He might have been a Roman official, could have been a Jewish official, but he was someone that held some important position. 
But I do hope you catch that his important position did not make him immune to having a sick child. And that's quite common in Jesus's ministry. In fact, in the other gospel accounts, there are a number of healings that involve a father bringing a request about a very sick child to Jesus. We see it in Jairus's daughter in uh, Matthew 9. There's the Roman centurion's son in Luke 7 and the father who brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus in Matthew 17. See, Jesus had healed many people prior to this moment with this particular dad in John 4. And even though this is the first healing mentioned in, in the book of John, the other three gospels record that by this point, physical healings were already a part of Jesus's early ministry. And word had gotten out about that. So this dad shows up in Cana where Jesus is, but this dad did not yet have a genuine faith in Jesus. And our Lord's about to confront his unbelief. And he does that in the dad's crisis of faith. Letter A on your outline would be the dad's crisis of faith. Look in verse 46 in your Bibles. Look at what it says. The boy is described in verse 46 as ill. But in verse 47, you'll notice that he's, it's mentioned he's at the point of death. That just shows the gravity of this situation. So after a long day's walk, this dad has come and he's asking for his son to be healed. He was in a crisis of faith. And many of us have lived through a moment like this where someone we love is in a helpless state and they cannot get well through normal means. Some of you in this room have heard a doctor say, I'm sorry, there's nothing more that we can do. And those words are hard to hear, but God is never absent in any crisis. Brothers and sisters, in every crisis that we go through, God remains sovereign over all things. You know what that means practically? <laughs> It means that God is orchestrating the crisis for his intended purpose. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 46.10, God declares, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Whether you want to say God caused the crisis or allowed the crisis, that's immaterial because it is God who is governing all things for his own glory and our good. God has his purpose in every moment of every day, even in a crisis. And this crisis of faith that this dad has experienced is designed by a loving heavenly father to cause us to trust him for the ultimate solution. It's important to keep that in mind, the ultimate solution. If you're having health struggles right now, your health struggles are not ultimately about you getting better physically because even if you do, something else is gonna kill you. Right? We can be honest about that. It's true for all of us. So physically getting better is not where the ultimate battle is. The ultimate battle in any crisis is for our faith. I'm in a lot of settings where I hear prayer requests and we regularly pray for people to be physically healed and that is a good and right thing. But rarely do we pray for a sick person's faith to be strengthened as they suffer. That's where the real battle is, that we grow in our faith as we walk through.
through a crisis. You know, one of the many insidious lies of the prosperity gospel is that it is God's will for you to always be healthy. That's a lie. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons it ignores Genesis chapter three. In Genesis chapter three, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, the consequence of suffering and death came into the world. And from that point on, every person who loves Jesus and every person who doesn't love Jesus will become ill and eventually die. So friends, it may very well be God's will that you go through a crisis of faith in order for you you to recognize your need to believe in Christ. As we've already read in this passage, Jesus will solve this dad's biggest problem, but his biggest problem is not his sick child. It's his unbelief. C.S. Lewis once wrote that pain is the megaphone of God. That's such a good illustration. Because God uses that megaphone of pain to get our attention so that we might recognize our need for him and deepen our faith. Jesus is confronting this man's unbelief in his crisis of faith, and he's confronting it in the dad's lack of faith. Let her be on your outlines, the dad's lack of faith. (laughs) It is fascinating to me in verse 48 how Jesus answers this dad's request to heal his son. It might even see that Jesus' answer is rude or maybe even uncaring. But the word you in Jesus' response is plural in the original language. Look at verse 48 with me. So when Jesus answers, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, that's not rudeness to the Father. But Jesus is actually talking to everyone in that moment. And it's about a lack of faith. It's an indictment, not just on one Galilean dad, but on all the Galileans and on us too. Again, similar to the modern prosperity gospel, the problem here in first century Israel is that people had this need for a constant display of miraculous signs. And even though that masquerades under the banner of faith, that's actually a lack of faith. See, when we demonstrate a lack of faith, when we require some necessary proof that we must have or we must see in order to believe in Jesus. And this happens several times in the gospel accounts, probably the most notably, doubting Thomas after the resurrection. But the demand for proof and for signs and wonders was common then and it's common today. It's actually the worldly mindset of seeing is believing You know what that means when someone says seeing is believing? Friends, it's just not true. It's not faith. It's actually a demonstration of unbelief. And this is the same mentality that the religious leaders had when they were mocking Jesus as he hung on the cross. In Matthew 27, 42, they said, he is the king of of, of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Translation, seeing is believing. But it's just not true. That's not faith. In fact, Hebrews 11.1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Our God's not some cosmic vending machine that we can manipulate to do what we want him to do. 
Our posture is not show me God and then I'll believe you. No, we don't command Jesus. We follow his commands. And look, I get the temptation. I've been praying for the healing of my son since he was two years old. But I've learned over the years that God can be trusted when things don't make sense to me. He is still trustworthy. And that is the essence of what faith is. It's trusting God when things don't make sense. In the book, Trusting God, that I've recommended to you on your outline, Jerry Bridges says this, God, in his infinite wisdom, knows exactly what adversity we need to grow more and more into the likeness of his son. He not only knows what we need, but when we need it and how best to bring it to pass in our lives. Wow. But this dad in John 4 isn't there yet. Because in verse 49, look at it with me, he goes from requesting to insisting as he repeatedly begs Jesus to heal his son. And in that moment, this dad makes two false assumptions that reveal his own unbelief. He does it in one sentence, too. In verse 49, look at it with me in your Bible. Jesus, he says to Jesus, sir, come down before my child dies. Now, I just want to take that sentence and break it in half. First of all, come down. Come down, meaning come to Capernaum. Come to where the dad lived and where the son was at that moment. So the false assumption that the dad was making there is that Jesus had to be with the boy in order to heal him. And that is gloriously not true. He says, come down before my child dies. That's the second false assumption that the dad was making, which is that Jesus needed to heal the boy before the boy died because, well, evidently, you can't raise people from the dead, right? Death has the final word, doesn't it? No, again, that is gloriously not true. I wonder if this Galilean dad knew the words of Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, where God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Friends, the mystery of how God works is ultimately a beautiful thing. But if you think God is predictable or you think you've got him all figured out, he may have a crisis come into your life so that you would stop trusting in your own thoughts and your own ways and instead trust in him. Now, thankfully, the story doesn't stop here because at some point in all of this, we get to see how Jesus conquers unbelief. That's number three on your outline. Jesus conquers unbelief. That's what he does. We don't precisely know the date or the time that this dad got saved, but it seems that in verse 50, the process is beginning because his unbelief is giving way to genuine faith. And so in this real life situation here, it's picturing what salvation looks like. It's an awful crisis, but it reminds us over 2,000 years later precisely why we need a savior. And that's because we cannot believe on our own. Some people tend to think about salvation as God's grace plus my faith. That God has demonstrated his grace to me in Christ, but what I bring to the table is my faith, my believing. (laughs) But as we saw last Sunday, salvation belongs to the Lord, all of it. 
And Ephesians 2.8 tells us specifically that my faith is actually a gift from the Lord. Think about it, friends. The miraculous ability to believe in Jesus for salvation is a gift from God. And that's what Jesus is doing here by giving the dad a confident faith. Letter A on your outline is a confident faith. Just look at verse 50 in your Bibles, please. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. That's it, plain and simple. <laughs> Jesus didn't say, well, let me get my stuff and I'll go with you. Or let's hurry before the boy dies. No, he says, go, your son will live. Jesus was then and is now under no obligation to heal anyone physically, but he does it here for the same reason he does it anywhere at any time, and that is by his grace and for his glory. That's what he does. And so what did the dad do? Well, stay in verse 50 and look at it with me. What does it say? The man what? The man what? Say it again. Believe, that's right. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. So once again, seeing is not believing. This dad took Jesus at his word and trusted Jesus to do what Jesus had already done even though the dad hadn't seen proof of that yet. It's a confident faith. You think about it just as Jesus did in Genesis 1 and 2. When, when he spoke all things into existence. Jesus speaks here in this passage, 20 miles away from the boy. <laughs> and the boy's body on a subatomic level responds to the one whose voice is over all creation. It's amazing. But it's not the most amazing thing that happens here. See, Jesus didn't need to be in Capernaum. And the funny thing is, he didn't even need to speak this for it to become true. But he, in his grace, he does so. He commands it verbally so that the dad can hear it and respond to it. And that's the most amazing thing that happens in this passage. The dad responds. And I pray that's what's happening to some of you in your heart this morning. That you might hear the word of Jesus, trust the word of Jesus, and respond to it by faith. It's amazing to see what Jesus does here. He does a miraculous work of grace in giving this dad the gift of faith. And it's all based upon a promise that hasn't yet been fully realized. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I hope so. Because again, this miracle is picturing salvation. Because like all scripture, this passage points us forward to the ultimate redemption and the ultimate healing that's found only in Christ. I've used this quote before, but I love it. C.H. Spurgeon once said about the miracles that are mentioned in the Gospels, all our Lord's miracles were intended to be parables. They were intended to instruct as well as impress. They are sermons to the eye. This physical miracle that really happened to a Galilean boy ain't about the boy. It's about salvation. It's about his dad's unbelief being conquered by Jesus. And now the man has a confident faith and his confidence is in the only, only trustworthy source. So the question is, who are you putting your confidence in? Just think about your last week. Think about what irritated you last week. 
What got you riled up last week? Did you get frustrated with yourself and your own limitations and failures? Were you irked by a particular politician or political party? Were you bothered by your own preferences not being met by other people? Those answers will tell you who you're putting your confidence in. And friends, there's only one trustworthy source of confident faith, and it's Jesus. Jesus gives this dad a confident faith, but he also conquers his unbelief by giving him a confirmed faith. Letter B would be a confirmed faith. By the time we get to verse 51, this dad is now going down from Cana to Capernaum. And he's headed home to see what he already believes. And hilariously, his servants are going up from Capernaum to Cana and they meet along the route and they have good news that the boy is recovering, the passage says. The word in verse 51 that gets translated into English, recovering, means to have life again. In the original language of the Bible, it's the exact same word that Jesus used in his promise to the dad when Jesus said to him, your son will live again. So the servants were not saying, well, the kid's hanging on. No, they were saying, your son will live just as Jesus promised he would, even though the servants had no idea Jesus made that promise. And then the dad asked that funny question about what time the boy was healed, and guess what? It was the same exact time that Jesus had originally spoken the promise to the dad the day before. Notice the word yesterday in verse 52. So once again, seeing is not believing. This dad believed before he ran into the servants and their news simply confirmed what he already believed. So how is that even possible? It's possible because faith is a gift from God in salvation. That's how it's possible. A young lady who's a member of our church shared her salvation testimony on one of our podcasts this past week. And it was an encouraging example of how Jesus conquers unbelief. And I would recommend that podcast to you. This man's unbelief was conquered not by his own faith, but by Jesus giving him a confident faith, a confirmed faith, and then finally, let her see on your outline, giving him a contagious faith, a contagious faith, just like last Sunday with the transformation of the woman at the well. We find out that even though the gospel is personal, it ain't private. Because in the second half of verse 53, John reiterates what has happened to the dad. Look at it with me. He says, and he himself believed. But notice then that what happened to dad wasn't limited to dad. What else does it say? And all his household, that term household, is used in the New Testament as not just limited to family members. We already know he has a son and he has a wife and maybe other children, but he also has servants. And all of those people are impacted because Jesus saves dad. I love that. Because it just shows the impact that one father can have when he genuinely believes in Jesus. And to every dad in this room that has kids in the home like I do, I remind you and myself that we are shepherds who lead a small flock. So don't farm out your spiritual leadership to your wife or anybody else for that matter. 
As dads, we are uniquely positioned by God to influence those in our home for the gospel. And no, we don't have to be the one who executes every single detail of raising godly kids, but we're called to be the ones who initiate it. And many of us know that parenting can feel like an 18-year crisis of faith, right? But God uses the trials of parenting not just to deepen the faith of parents, but to shape the next generation that will claim the name of Christ. May we never forget that. And beyond just the dads in the room, if you've been with us throughout this series, you know that week after week we've been hearing about being a witness, that that we're ambassadors of the good news that Christ saves sinners. We've heard that over and over again since Easter. So let me ask you, How's it going so far? How's your witness? How was your witness last week? Will you and I recognize the person or persons that God brings into our path this week to share the gospel with? Friends, there's a lot going on in this passage. But the big idea that I think this passage drives home is that in salvation, the gift of faith comes to us to flow through us and impact those who are around us. That's what we see here. This dad trusted the word of Christ, and so should we.